0: Good morning. morning. I've already been very encouraged by our time in worship this morning. I hope you have as well. If you have your copy of God's Word, please open with me to John chapter 12. We're going to look this morning at verse 27 through the first part of verse 36. John chapter 12, verses 27 to 36. And I hope that you'll follow along with me as we read from God's word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, and heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, grant us illumination now from the Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, and ask you that you would please open our hearts and minds that we would believe, obey, and apply your word for your glory and for our good. Please keep me from error, Father. Please Help us as a church to hold fast to the truth. To not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. But to be anchored, Father, in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We pray that this moment now would be another layer of grace upon grace in the life of our church. That we might grow into the image of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, it doesn't take long in reading the Bible to recognize that the gospel of John is somewhat different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. By different, I don't mean contradictory. I simply mean that John's presentation of Jesus' life has a different emphasis than what we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three accounts, often called the synoptic gospels, present a number of events in Jesus' life that John does not include, like Jesus' baptism, for example, or the transfiguration. John, on the other hand, includes events not found in the synoptics, like turning the water into wine or the visit of Nicodemus in, in the nighttime. Are the gospel writers at odds with one another? Of course not. Rather, the glory of Christ is so profound that God has given us multiple perspectives. It takes four entire Gospels to tell the story of Jesus Christ. It takes four whole Gospels to picture the grace and truth that is the Lord Jesus. When we compare the four Gospels, one area of difference that stands out is the vocabulary. Take the word Father, for example. This this is actually the, the launching pad for the whole sermon, so I hope you'll follow me on this. Consider references to God as Father. The Synoptic Gospels refer to God as Father approximately 55 times. Now, that took me, that was a five minute count, so I might have missed one or two. The Synoptic Gospels refer to God as Father approximately 55 times. The Gospel of John, by contrast, refers to God as Father well over 90 times. Almost two times as many as the synoptics. While the other Gospels include the truth of God as Father, John has a unique emphasis on it. In fact, the beginning and the end of John's Gospel establish just this point. In chapter 1, John gives us his theme. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son... From the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the only Son from the Father. And then at the end of the book, chapter 20, John tells us his purpose. Why did he write? These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for John. He writes so that we will believe Jesus is the Son from the Father. This is why John has almost two times as many references to God the Father in his gospel as do Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because the sonship, the sonship of Jesus is one of John's key themes. Now, what does this have to do with our passage this morning in John chapter 12? Quite a bit, actually. You can see straight away in verse 27 that Jesus refers to God as the Father. Jesus is facing the cross, as we're going to see, and so he prays. He prays to his Father. But the significant part is that the Father replies back to him. Verse 28. The Father replies back. This is the only instance in John when the heavenly relationship between the Father and the Son is audibly manifested in the earthly realm. It's the only instance in John. So, as the cross draws near, what's the lens through which we see Jesus? The lens of Father and Son. The Son prays to His Father, and the Father responds to His Son. That connection between the Father and the Son, that connection is what gives us our bearings for this morning. How should we approach this passage? What should get our attention when we read these verses? The answer is the Sonship of Jesus Christ. That's what should get our attention. As the Son prays to the Father, and as the Father replies back to the Son, we learn more about Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Since He is the Son, what kind of Son is He? That's where we're headed this morning. And in pursuit of that theme, we're going to notice three features of Jesus as the Son of God. Sonship is the theme, so three features of Jesus as the Son of God. Let me give them to you in advance, just so you know where we're going. The first addresses Jesus' faithfulness. The second highlights his victory. And the third, importantly, gives us his testimony. Faithfulness, victory, testimony. Three features, then, on the sonship of Jesus Christ. Let's begin in verses 27 and 28 with the faithfulness of the Son of God. You'll remember from last week that Jesus is mindful of his impending death. Like a grain of wheat, verse 24, Jesus will die in order to bring forth life. Here in our passage, the reality of death remains on Jesus' mind. Listen again, verse 27. Jesus is speaking. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father save me from this hour? Jesus Christ is fully human. That's what should get your attention when you read verse 27. The cross is on the horizon full of suffering and pain. And therefore Jesus is troubled. The sense here is to be unsettled by something. It's not fear Per se, but it is deep agitation, even horror at the prospect of what he is about to endure. And so, verse 27 tells us that our Lord, who is fully God, is also fully man. He's deeply troubled. The verse goes on to describe Jesus' internal deliberation. He is processing it out loud here. He asks this rhetorical question And what shall I say? How should Jesus respond? He's deeply troubled, and so he asks, What should I pray? Can you relate to the Lord at this point? I know that I can. Not in the sense of having to face something as horrific as the cross, but we can all relate to facing a situation and realizing, I know that I ought to pray right now, but I don't know what I should pray for. Have you had one of those moments? I don't even know what to ask for. That's where Jesus is at on some level. He he asks himself, what should I say to this trouble? What should I say? Now the next clause in verse 27 is interesting and it requires some careful thinking. The ESV translate the next clause in verse 27 as a question. Do you see it there? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? So it could be it could be that Jesus continues on that same line of rhetorical thinking. What shall I say, he asks. Should I pray for the Father to save me from the suffering? mark. The ESV takes it as a question. Something that Jesus considered, but not something that he actually prayed. And that translation makes sense. But let's remember, friends, a later scene from Jesus' life, where he was also praying... In the garden of Gethsemane. During that dark night, Jesus did not ask rhetorical questions. He didn't wonder if he should pray like this. No, in Gethsemane, Jesus actually prayed, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. This moment in John 12 is not exactly the same, but you can already see the dark shadows of Gethsemane creeping across Jesus' heart and mind. Even if verse 27 is only a question... The point remains that the prospect of suffering is very real to Jesus. He is deeply troubled. I want to stress this to you this morning. That the prospect of suffering is very real to Jesus. I want to stress this to you because it can help you pray. It helps me pray. And what we ought to take away from this is that Jesus is not some kind of detached robotic figure that mechanically walks through life just pretending to be human and doing the things that he wink, wink, nudge, nudge knows people ought to do. He's not a detached robotic figure. He's fully man, like you and me, yet without sin. He faced suffering, and in the moment of testing, he knew what it was like to be at the crossroads of saying, How ought I to pray? He knew what it was like to pour his heart out to the Father, even in anguish as to what he ought to pray for. And so, friends, I just want to point out that you and I can pray the same way. Perhaps you need to hear this today. God, the Father, welcomes your prayers, even the anguished ones. God certainly delights to hear his children pray in faith, but he also delights to hear his children pray in weakness. He welcomes those prayers too. So before we go any further, I simply want to encourage you from the life of Jesus, when you are troubled and you don't know what to pray, you can pray as Jesus prayed. You can bring your troubled soul before God, and you can ask the Heavenly Father to do what is best, what is good, what is right, even if you don't know what that is. Even if all you can pray is, God, do what you know is best. You can pray that way. That kind of prayer is not a cop-out prayer. It's not a shortcut prayer. It's a faithful prayer. Even when your soul is troubled. And that's exactly where Jesus goes in the remainder of verse 27. When his soul is troubled, Jesus returns to the faithfulness of God. Look at the rest of verse 27. Notice where Jesus goes, What shall I say? Father, save me for this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Friends, you see what Jesus does here? He submits himself to the purposeful plan of God. That's the answer to his trouble. There's a unique aspect here that we need to appreciate Jesus is the Son of God, the one who uniquely reveals the Father. But he is also the servant of the Lord, promised in Isaiah, the one who comes to gather and redeem God's people. And that means, that means the cross where Jesus will die is the will of God for his Son. The cross is the will of God. The suffering of the Son of God was promised long ago, and now it's coming to pass in Jesus' earthly life. In other words, the cross is not solely a horrible display of human wickedness. The cross is also an incredible display of God's faithfulness. God is keeping His promises. He's fulfilling His word. So when Jesus' soul is troubled, it is the character of God that calms His mind. It is the faithfulness of God that becomes the anchor to His soul. And so... Buoyed by God's character, Jesus offers a rather remarkable prayer. He's finally now going to make his request known. And it's a rather remarkable prayer because it doesn't actually focus on his trouble. What shall I say, Jesus asks. Verse 28 is his answer. Look at how he prays. Father, glorify your name. That's the Son's prayer. Jesus' ultimate prayer is for the glory of God. Jesus' deepest desire is for the Father's name to be glorified. What does that mean? What does it mean for the Father's name to be glorified? It means, at least in part, that the Father's holiness is revealed, that He is pure and righteous and completely free from sin. It also means that the Father's mercy is revealed, that He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Glorifying God's name, in other words is nothing less than putting the character of God on display in the world so that the world sees an accurate picture of what the Father is like. That's what it means to glorify God. You put God on display in a fashion that tells the truth about Him. That's what Jesus prays will happen. The trouble of His soul leads Him to pray for the glory of God to be revealed. And understand, that request for the glory of God, is not disconnected from Jesus' trouble. The request for God's name to be exalted is not, is not unrelated to Jesus' trouble. I, I, I really want us to make sure we understand th- this point. Jesus' prayer is not a hollow display of piety as though simply mentioning the glory of God makes hard things better. That's not how he's praying. This is a very purposeful prayer from Jesus. God's glory is the answer to Jesus' troubled soul. Follow the reasoning for, for a moment. What is troubling Jesus? The prospect of dying on the cross. That moment of suffering and anguish is deeply unsettling to him. So Jesus prays for God's name to be glorified. But where is God's name most clearly glorified? In the cross, where Jesus will suffer and die. God's holiness is revealed at the cross as the Son of God bears the wrath of God against sin. God's mercy is revealed at the cross as the Son of God suffers so that you and I will be reconciled to Him by His grace. So do you see the connection? Jesus is troubled by the cross, and the prayer for God's glory strengthens Him to face the very thing that's troubling Him. The prayer for God's glory strengthens him to do the thing that God has given him to do. So, far from being impractical and just hollow piety, the prayer for the glory of God's name is actually the pathway for Jesus to be faithful. His prayer strengthens him for the very thing that God has given him to do. Is there anyone as glorious and compelling as Jesus Christ? At every step of his life, Jesus is faithful to his Father. At every step of his life, Jesus is showing us, his disciples, his commitment to God's glory and to our good. Is there anyone as compelling as Jesus Christ? God has allowed me to preach the gospel for about 11 years now and every year every week really every week I am increasingly gripped by the glory of this man Jesus do you know what I thought to myself on Thursday in my office as I was writing this sermon and tears were welling up in my eyes as I saw the connection between the glory of God and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ do you know what I thought at that moment I thought I want to know this man I want to know him I want you to know him I want us to know him together. Is there anyone as glorious and compelling as this man Jesus? I don't know of anyone. Here is the Son of God praying for strength to be faithful so that you and I will be saved. It's remarkable. That's what should grip you from these verses. Jesus Christ is faithful to his Father and in his faithfulness, sinners like me are saved. Can you fathom such grace? I thought about making an application here about how the glory of God can strengthen us to be faithful to the Father. I thought about making that application, and that's not an illegitimate application. It's, it's true. Like Jesus, the desire for God's glory can strengthen us to be faithful to to do what God has given us to do that would be a legitimate application but i want to make a different application the reality is the reality is you and i are not always committed to the glory of god are we we are often committed to our own glory that's the awful reality of sin that remains in our hearts we are not always faithful and we don't always desire god's name to be lifted up and yet We're saved. Why? Because the Son of God was faithful in our place and for our salvation. That's the application that I want to stress today. Before we ask how we can be faithful like Jesus, let's pause and praise God that we're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus. Amen? The Son of God is deeply troubled but the glory of God strengthens him to do what you and I would not do, and that's obey the Father perfectly. And in the Son's faithfulness, sinners like us are saved. We're only two verses in. There's more to see in this passage, so let's, let's move now to the second feature of Jesus' sonship from verses 28 to 33. Let's consider the victory of the Son of God. We just thought about the faithfulness of the Son of God. Let's think now about the victory of the Son of God. God the Father responds to Jesus' prayer at the end of verse 28. Like we said at the outset, this is the only instance of a heavenly voice in the Gospel of John. And the Father's reply is affirming. Listen again, verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So, the Son's faithfulness will have its full effect. The Father has been glorified in Jesus' ministry so far, and the Father will be glorified ultimately in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So, as the cross draws nearer, Jesus has this supreme confidence that the Father has and will. Do what Jesus prays for. Glorify His name. So as the suffering is coming towards Jesus, He knows that His death will not be in vain. God affirms Him from heaven, I will do as you have prayed, I will glorify My name. It's affirming for the Son. The crowd, however, doesn't understand. Verse 29, They debate whether this was a natural or supernatural occurrence. Some of them think that it thundered. Other people say that angels spoke. Clearly the crowd heard something, but they don't don't really know what it was. And Jesus' response is interesting. Look at verse 30. Jesus answered, This voice is for your sake, not mine. Now, there's a question that we have to answer at this point. Jesus says the voice was for the crowd's sake, but it's also clear that the crowd hasn't understood the voice. So, how can the heavenly voice help the crowd when they don't understand what they heard? That's the question. The answer has to do with later revelation. There's a theme of misunderstanding in the Gospel of John, the crowds, and often even the disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying or what is happening. In fact, they often misunderstand things. And so, what do, what do they need? What do even the disciples need? They need further revelation. And, and that's what will happen with the disciples. Following Jesus' resurrection, the Lord explains many things to them. And then after Pentecost, the Spirit also helps the disciples to interpret what happened to Jesus. And so that's probably the best way to take verses 29 and 30 here in chapter 12. When, when Jesus says the voice is for the benefit of the crowd, we should take that as referring more to the disciples and to others who would believe than to the crowd as a whole. Through later revelation, the truth of, of, the, of the voice, the heavenly voice, would be confirmed in the disciples' hearts and minds and this is not an insignificant point in understanding the gospel this is not an insignificant point the gift of understanding from god is absolutely necessary to to make sense of the cross remember the cross is a shameful death for jesus and so the natural conclusion when you witness if you were there and you would have witnessed jesus dying on the cross your natural conclusion would be that Jesus had failed in his ministry. The natural conclusion would be that his claims of glory and truth were all false because he died in such a shameful way. But the heavenly voice in verse 28 is countering that natural conclusion with the supernatural interpretation. The cross is not shame, it's glory. The cross is not failure, it's victory. And so, even if the full meaning will only come later, the heavenly voice in verse 28 is actually telling you the right interpretation to what's going to happen to Jesus. When he dies, it's not defeat, it's victory. It's victory. And it's that theme of victory that Jesus picks up on in verse 31. This is how we know we're on the right track with our interpretation because Jesus picks up on the theme of victory in verse 31. Following the voice from heaven, Jesus begins to explain what the cross means. And the overriding theme is victory. Notice again what the Lord says, verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You can see here that the key word is judgment. The idea is to render a verdict like in a courtroom. So it's not so much punishment as it is a verdict. The cross, according to Jesus, is God's verdict against the rebellion of this world. It is not true that the world triumphs over Jesus at the cross. That's how it appears But Jesus says the opposite is true. In reality, the cross is God's judgment against this world. The rebellion of this world will not succeed. God will triumph in victory over the darkness of this age. So the cross is the revelation of victory over the world. At the same time, the cross is also God's verdict against Satan, whom Jesus refers to as the ruler of this world. Since Genesis chapter 3, the evil one has had some level of dominion over the earth. Satan works destruction and death through sin, and he delights in these things as an assault on the glory of God. And so the cross might appear to be Satan's finest hour. The cross might appear to be Satan's moment of triumph. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that scene where they where they kill Aslan on the stone table and all the wicked people in Narnia are celebrating because they think, we've won! We've killed the great lion. And the beauty of the story is that they haven't killed the great lion. They've just signed their own death warrant. That's true at the cross as well. The cross is not Satan's victory, but his defeat. At the cross, Jesus disarms the principalities and powers of this age and he puts them to open shame Paul says, Jesus puts the powers and principalities to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. How does the cross shame Satan and the powers of this world? Well, what is Satan's most potent weapon? Death. What does Jesus defeat Satan with? Death. He crushes death through the power of death, thereby disarming the powers and putting them to shame as weak. You see, the cross then is the victory of the Son of God. What is happening as Jesus gives up his spirit? God is issuing his verdict against the world and over Satan. Still, the theme of victory continues. Jesus will triumph over the world, he will triumph over Satan, and his cross will also bring salvation. Look at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. We've seen this language of drawing people before in John. John chapter 6. Do you remember that passage? John 6, 44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Son works with the father drawing people to himself and and this drawing of people is an act of salvation when Jesus draws people it is so he might raise them up on the last day drawing then is a prelude to resurrection and resurrection is salvation with Jesus Christ so verse 32 then is describing Jesus's victory over sin What will happen when he is lifted up on the cross? What's going on at that moment? He is accomplishing salvation and drawing his people to himself so that they too will be saved. And this drawing of God's people occurs in all kinds of people. All people, Jesus says. Jew and Gentile alike. The cross of Christ is salvation for the world. Not in the universal sense that every single individual is saved, but universal in that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are saved. Remember the Greeks who came to Jesus last week in verse 20? Or they came to Philip and said, We want to see Jesus? Do you remember the Greeks last week, in verse 20? Remember how they wanted to see Jesus, and we said that Jesus never really answers their question? Right? We, never, we never get the end of the exchange between Jesus and those Gentiles who want to see him. Now we get the answer. Th- this is the answer to the, to the Gentiles' request to see Jesus. Where can a sinner, Jew or Gentile alike, where can a sinner see Jesus? At the cross, where he's raised up to glory, the glory of victory over sin and death. That's where you see Jesus at the cross this is the kind of death that Jesus will die John says in verse 33 it is not a death of defeat and shame it is a death of glory and victory even the victory of the son of God how should we respond to this God's Word always demands our response. There is never a moment when you read or hear or meditate on God's Word and God is not demanding a response from you. God's Word always demands a response. So what should our response be here in John 12? That's where we turn for the final aspect of Jesus' sonship, verses 34 to 36. And here we're going to think about the testimony of the Son of God. This is our response. We'll see the testimony of the Son of God. To the surprise of no one reading John's gospel, the, the crowd is quite confused. They can't put everything together in the right way. So Jesus, they ask Jesus a question. Verse 34, look at their question. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The Old Testament is pretty clear that when the Messiah comes, he is going to reign forever on David's throne. Psalms 89 and 132 are good examples. So the crowd the crowd knows that part of their Bibles. They know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to reign forever. But they also seem to understand that Jesus is talking about dying. They connect that phrase, lifted up, with, with death. And so they're confused. If the Old Testament says the Messiah endures forever, and you, Jesus, keep saying that you're going to be lifted up in death, then how in the world do your words fit with God's words in the Old Testament? We're confused. Now, what is the crowd getting at? When you read John's gospel, there's a lot of interpretive decisions about how do you take the crowd's questions. What are they getting at? Do they genuinely want more understanding? Is that what they're after? Or, Or, are they pressing Jesus to drop all of this talk about death and just take up the throne already? Just be the king? I'll argue it's the latter. The crowd's question, at least in part, is not genuine. They're pressing Jesus to conform to their expectations. They don't want to submit to Jesus' word. To say it a different way, they don't want a Messiah who dies. They don't want a king who suffers. They don't want a savior who sheds his own blood. They want a general. They want a conquering Messiah. Stop talking about dying, Jesus. Conform to our word and we'll believe you. We'll follow you. That's how I take their question in verse 34. And so for that reason, Jesus comes back with a call that contains a very serious warning. Look at verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, Lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Friends, we could summarize verse 35 in just one phrase time is short. Time is short. At the core, that's what Jesus is saying in verse 35 the time is short. He is the light of the world, but that light will only be with the crowd for a little while longer. And therefore, don't delay. The time is short. Verse 35 is Jesus' way of saying, stop playing games. Stop fooling around with debating with me. Walk in the light while you have the light. Come to the light today because the time is short. That's the call. But then there's this warning. There's this warning in verse 4. It's really a startling phrase. Lest the darkness overtake you. What is alarming to me in that phrase is that Jesus personifies darkness as though it is on the hunt. He personifies darkness as though it is moving around with a purpose. Seeking to overtake people. Darkness in John's gospel is the realm of unbelief. Darkness is the realm of ignorance and wickedness. And here in verse 35, Jesus says that darkness can overtake those who do not believe. What strikes me then is how Jesus refutes the idea of neutrality when it comes to responding to the gospel. Many people assume that if they refuse to believe the gospel, the alternative is they get to just live in the world and exist and set the terms for however they want to live. So I don't if you, you tell someone the gospel and then they say, I don't believe, I would rather just, you know, be be my own captain, whatever, and set the terms for for how I want. To live that, That's what I mean by neutrality. The idea that the alternative to faith in Jesus is some sort of neutral existence where you just get to decide what, what you're going to do with your life. And, and Jesus utterly destroys that idea of neutrality in verse 35. There is no neutrality in this world. The alternative to faith in Jesus is not a self-made life. You need to hear me on this today. The alternative to faith in Jesus is not a self-made life. The alternative to faith in Jesus is darkness chasing you down and destroying you in the end. That's the alternative. You see the warning? Jesus calls the crowd to believe in Him, but He also tells them the truth. If you don't believe in Me, the alternative is not just, "Eh, however you want to live... The alternative is darkness. And that darkness will overtake you. And so the Lord comes back to the call in verse 36. He goes from call to warning. And then he ends with the call. Verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light. That you may become sons of light. The only way to escape darkness is is to believe in the light of the world, Jesus Christ. While the time remains, come to the light. That's the response that God's word demands from you and me this morning. Come to the light. When we come to the light, when we trust in Jesus Christ, we come to share in who he is. Instead of the darkness overtaking us and making us dark ourselves, we are transformed so that we become Sons of light. Children of light. Jesus' light transforms us to be like Him. His light drives out the darkness of unbelief and ignorance. And His light fills us with truth. His light changes us so that we display the glory of God as those made in Christ's image. Just as Jesus displays the glory of God. So instead of being overtaken by darkness, those who come to the light share in the light and become One with the light themselves. They're transformed into Jesus' image. And this is where I want to end today. I want to end right here with the testimony of the Son of God. His call is very clear for everyone who is hearing His word this morning. Come to the light. Trust in Jesus Christ and share in the glory that he accomplishes at the cross. But that call, friends, that call also comes with a sober warning. The alternative is darkness that will overtake you. The alternative is darkness separating us from God who dwells in unapproachable light. The alternative to faith in God's word is not neutrality, it's darkness. And therefore, Christ Through His Word, Christ is calling you to come to Him today. If you're not a Christian, if you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, this means that today is the day to confess your sin before God and to turn from that sin to trust in Jesus Christ. One of the great lies of sin is that you can put it off till tomorrow to determine whether or not you're going to submit to Jesus. And friends, that's foolishness. It's foolishness. You don't know that you'll be promised tomorrow. God's word is very clear. Today is the day to not harden your heart any longer, but to come to the light. So if you're not a Christian... That's what God's word is calling you to do today. Jesus Christ was lifted up at the cross in order to save sinners. His blood is powerful to save and he saves all of those who will trust in him. So if you're not a Christian today, God's word is calling you to believe. If you are a Christian, if you are repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, there's a call here for you and for me as well. The reality is that even after we trust in Christ, we often return to the darkness, don't we? There's no sense in denying it. It's true. We often return to the darkness. Our sin nature remains with us even after conversion, and sadly, we often go back to the ways of the old self. We often return to old sinful practices. What's more? Sometimes the darkness deceives us, even, even though we are believers. Sometimes the darkness deceives us. And the darkness of sin can, can whisper in the Christian's ear that it's easier to cover things up. The, the darkness can say that coming into the light will just bring shame and judgment. It's easier to cover things up. Don't tell anyone about that struggle. Don't tell anyone about that dark habit. Don't tell anyone about that thing that you do or think or practice when no one is looking. Don't tell anybody that. They'll just judge you. It'll be shameful. It's easier to hide. Just cover it up. Just go to church, put on the face, act like a Christian. Don't tell anyone. That's a lie, friends. It's a lie to believe that it's easier to hide. It's a lie to believe that coming into the light leads to shame and judgment. It's a lie. If you're a Christian today, if you haven't gotten anything else out of this sermon, in that long, meandering explanation of what in the world Jesus is doing when he's praying, if you haven't gotten anything else out of the message, please get this. If you are a Christian, the safest place for you to live is in the light in the light. If you have been holding on to some sin, if you have been living in the darkness, reckon with two things right now. Reckon with two things right now. That battle against sin is going to keep going until you see the Lord of glory and in seeing Him you're transformed into His image and that battle is won only by coming into the light. The safest place for you to be as a Christian is in the light. Living honestly, openly, confessing your sins. And so I pray, I pray that even if we are believers this morning, that we will hear the warning of Jesus Christ. The darkness is not neutral. The darkness is not neutral. Sin always progresses. I remember my father-in-law's voice Saturday after Saturday in the golf cart, driving down the golf course in Little Rock when he's discipling me. I think I'm just trying to lower my handicap, and my father-in-law is trying to help me be more like Jesus. And he says, sin always progresses, son. It always takes you deeper. Come to the light now. Come to the light. The safest place for a Christian to live is in the light. We must come to the light through repentance and faith, confessing our sin, and believing that Christ has defeated our sin at the cross. So, to every Christian, in the sound of my voice this morning, I am urging you to remember the victory of the Son of God that we spoke about earlier. Christ has defeated the world, He has defeated Satan, and He has defeated your sin. Do not hide in the darkness when the light of the world has already won your victory. Don't hide there anymore. Hear the words of Christ. Come to the light. Confess and receive again the grace of His victory. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we need your help. These are not not academic things that we are discussing. These are not intellectual curiosities. There is no no glory in mulling over the words of Jesus and thinking about his rhetorical questions and what they might mean and how the other gospels harmonize with John. These are not mere intellectual things, this is light and darkness life and death, salvation and destruction. Father, open our ears to hear. I pray, God, that if there are unbelievers among us that the Holy Spirit would do right now what only He can do, grant life to come to Christ. I pray for each of us who belong to Jesus this morning by faith that we would be renewed, that we would be renewed in the seriousness of godliness That the darkness is active and purposeful, that there is no neutrality. We either live in the dark, we either live in the light or the darkness overtakes us. Lord, help us, remind us that the safest place to live as believers is in the light of the gospel. Convict us, I pray for Holy Spirit conviction right now in our hearts, that we would come before you and openly and honestly acknowledge where we are. And seek grace and forgiveness. And seek help in the community of the saints. Help us God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.